I imagine that Peter would be uncomfortable with his image portrayed through iconography. Um, it would have been something quite embarrassing for him that he would see his image in this way. He didn't think of himself in this way. Surely he would disavow any saintliness. It suggests that he was not the salty person that he knew himself to be. He was not the sinner that he knew himself to be. And yet, as you know, Jesus knighted him as a rock upon which the church would be built. Last week, we considered Peter's words in response to Jesus's question, but who do you say I am? And all of the disciples were quiet when finally Peter ventured to name this holy mystery before them. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus blesses Peter for what he has said is so true and he promises Peter you are rock and upon this kind of faith I will build my church but this week in the scripture that is before us we dip into the second half of this story coming from Caesarea Philippi, that location for the occurrence of this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. It's not hard to see why Peter called Jesus anointed. Think about what he had witnessed from that moment that Jesus beckoned him to come and follow and to be one of his who would be a fisher of men. Jesus, from the very earliest point in his preaching, was reinterpreting the Torah, the law, in ways that Peter and Andrew and James and John had never encountered. The way Jesus read the scroll was so very different than the ways in which they had been brought up. His insights made them think, here is one that we wish to spend our lives with. The way in which he talked about anger and how he talked about adultery and how he talked about retaliation and how he talked about our enemies and how he talked about prayer and how he talked about wealth and how he talked about worry and how he talked about love. They had heard nothing like it. 
And don't you remember that Peter had not only heard him preach, but he had heard him as he interacted with people and as he saw Jesus reaching out to touch those who were sick, those who were blind, those who were lame, those who were possessed. And in each instance, there was the miracle of cure. As he observed Jesus, it was unbelievable but unmistakable that when Jesus spoke even into the force of nature, that nature would obey that voice. On the churning sea, be still. And it was still. Jesus' concern for not only the gravest of conditions, but for even daily bread among the crowds. And the feeding in such a way that once everyone tasted of supper, that there still was left over that many others could have eaten too. And Jesus' authority, not having to go to someone else in order to get permission or to get understanding, but that Jesus spoke as if he knew God interwoven with his spirit. The occupation by Rome was something that was a daily confrontation in Peter's life and in every disciple's life, in every Pharisee's life, in every scribe's life, in every Sadducee's life, in everyone's life. There in that geographical community that we call Israel, there was this oppressive occupation by this great power called Rome. And in that, there was this longing in all of those who were connected with the story of the Hebrew people and who lived in that space that even though it sparkled with the brilliance of money that had been poured into the temple by the political elite, that there was something that was missing. And they longed for the day when no longer there would be the tension between calling Caesar king or Herod king, but there might be another anointed of the Hebrew people, even as David was anointed. You remember the story, don't you, as Samuel 
set out on his journey directed by God to the house of Jesse and all of those sons paraded before him and Samuel's question is not there one other and then almost as an afterthought Jesse said my son David is keeping the sheep out in the field and Samuel sent for him knowing that God was already preparing him to anoint this child this boy king who would become the great uniting factor to let Israel see itself in a different way in a way that it had never seen itself don't you know that in the midst of Peter looking on this situation that it was Jesus who was God's pick even though it was just the beginnings happening here Jesus was God's pick for not only Israel but for the whole world it was at this point that Jesus began to speak of his suffering and his death something that caught Peter completely off guard as it catches us still as we see the images and Peter was so emboldened with the fact that this just did not fit with his idea of where Jesus was headed that he rebuked Jesus this anointed one this Messiah this son of the living God of whom he had just spoken he rebuked him for destroying the dream not only that Peter had but that surely Jesus had within him now over the last few days I've had it on my mind that the days of this week were crossing once again the anniversary of that original march on Washington in 1963 some of you may have been around to actually witness that on television if you don't you certainly were aware of it um, that August the 28th date will live forever in its importance uh, for this nation but with the recent death of, of John Lewis particularly this Georgian who was a part of those who were speaking at that great event for us to remember this is so very important John Lewis I understand had to be toned down with the words that he was preparing to speak and they called him back from the edge uh, Martin Luther King said you can't do this but the truth is that when Martin Luther King got up to speak at the March on Washington that he had to be toned up not toned down 
You can go online and look at the words of that wonderful speech that we call I have a dream speech. And you can see the point at which it happened. That he was speaking in such detail, in such a really an impassioned but a scholarly kind of way. He was giving a speech. When they say that Mahalia Jackson, this great gospel singer, realized what was going on that Martin Luther King was not getting to the heart of the people that were gathered there. And she had heard him preach before, and she called out to him and said, tell him about the dream. Tell him about the dream, Martin. And it was at that point that Martin Luther King went off script, <laughs> went off script, and began to speak those words that so many elementary school children have committed to memory. Now, at the point at which Martin Luther King was being encouraged and pumped up by the crowd and particularly by Mahalia Jackson, no one had their mind on the foreboding cloud of the projection of his life which would end less than five years from that day. But it was the reality for Martin Luther King Jr. But let's get back to the matter that's really at hand here. <laughs> Let's talk about Jesus for a moment, okay? Because this was a reality for Jesus on the projection of his life in the way in which he sought to make God known in the world. Not that he would have chosen to die in this way, but how could he choose to do any other thing? You remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And yet he knew where this path was going. In the wilderness... Satan had tempted Jesus before he even began to call his disciples. He was out there by himself and Satan began to put very plausible scenarios in front of Jesus. Tempting him with security. Tempting him with influence. Tempting him with power. You know the story. And finally, when Satan is put away by Jesus and the angels come and minister to Jesus, Jesus knows and Satan knows too that there will be other encounters with this adversary. 
And in this story, it is in the form of Peter. Now, when Sue and I drive to Tennessee, we head up by way of I-26 and go through Spartanburg and Andersonville and Asheville, and then we really get into the mountains up there. And on several places, we see signs like this. Have you seen them up there? Because the road is cut through the mountains, and still those rocks are hanging on the edge, and the authorities are afraid, and I'm sure that they have at times, had large boulders fall off the sides of those mountains and roll out into the roads. You've made the connection here, haven't you? That Peter was called the rock, which was meant to be a good thing. This is a good metaphor. Upon you, I will build my church. But here, in this setting, Jesus is saying to Peter, you've become my obstruction. You aren't with me on this. And he speaks those scathing words. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter had moved outside of the realm of what it meant to follow Jesus. Suffering happens. I don't have to tell you that. Suffering happens. It is a part of the reality of life. Now, we create some of it. I know that. I know that in my own life. I've created my own problems in certain places. I have, by the nature of certain choices that I have made, complicated my life. But sometimes it's just there. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that some of it just is. In fact, it is the human condition that we are going to suffer. Have you discovered that yet? Have you encountered life to the point? I can look at you and tell you know what suffering is. I can tell you know what suffering is. The dark side of what it means to be human. If you have not suffered yet, and you haven't lived quite long enough. I hate to look at children and say that. It has something, but not everything, to do with COVID-19. That produces its suffering. It has something, but not everything, to do with racism, that plague upon our society and the world, but not everything to do with racism. It has something to do with Hurricane Laura, but not everything to do with Hurricane Laura. But each of these are a slice of reality. Not one of us will get out of this world unscathed. That is not pessimism. That is reality. 
And I want to add something to this thought. Especially if you are following Jesus, you will suffer. It is not that you are seeking suffering, but suffering will find you and all those who follow Jesus. Jesus says, for those who follow, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Have you considered what that might be? Something that in following Jesus, you know you're going to complicate your life. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, wrote in his comments on these verses, he said, should we not consider all crosses all things grievous, grievous to flesh and blood as what they really are, as opportunities for embracing God's will at the expense of our own. And consequently, so many steps by which we may advance toward perfection. John Wesley believed that we could be perfected in love in this life. We should make a swift progress in the spiritual life if we were faithful in this practice. Crosses are so frequent that what, whoever makes advantage of them will soon be a great gainer. I think he invented a word there. But you get what he's saying, don't you? I have two thoughts here. That some of you, if you're really dealing with this scripture, you may be saying, is this what I signed up for? And, and it is. In baptism, it is what we sign up for. And if you look too hard at it, it can be overwhelming when you think only of the suffering. I visited a lady in the hospital that shouted at me one day. <clears throat> I said, Jesus understands your suffering. She was dying from cancer of the bone, which I have heard is one of the most painful things. And she shouted at me. I was still in seminary when I visited her. She shouted at me and she said, even Jesus didn't suffer like I'm suffering. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to say. I should have said, I'm only in seminary. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. I can tell you, I left the room pretty shortly after she spoke to me like that. And even still, it gives me pause. How is it that we become these great gainers as John Wesley referred to it. 
in all this reflection on crosses, I've had on my mind Simon of Cyrene. Does that name ring a bell with you at all? He was this one who was there in Jerusalem. Maybe he was a pilgrim. We don't know. He was from northern Africa. And he was there on the side of the, the street that, that we now call the Via Della Rosa, the, the Way of Sorrow, where Jesus carried his cross through the edge of Jerusalem and up to that site that is called Golgotha. And while Jesus was on that path, Jesus, you remember, had been lashed almost to the point of death. And he had been so weakened by all that he had been through that one of the centurions next to Jesus saw the situation and realized they were never going to get up to Golgotha. Jesus could not carry the cross up to Golgotha. And so he simply looked as Roman authority was always doing. You remember Jesus said, if anyone ever asked you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Any centurion could ask you to do whatever he wanted to do. And you would do it or he would make your life miserable. And with that piercing glaze, gaze, this centurion looked into the crowd and God help him if he was chosen because of the color of his skin. I don't know. He was from North Africa. But he looked into the eyes of Simon of Cyrene and simply pointed and said, help him carry the cross. Now, Simon would have never expected that his day would have gone this way. In fact, he may not have even been aware of what was going to be going on in that street at the time that he was there. But when he looked into the spectacle of that torturous scene, he made the right response. I, I want to believe, even though we do not know the rest of the story of Simon of Cyrene, just like we don't know the rest of the story of, uh, of Nicodemus and Jesus, I want to believe that Simon was making not only the decision to obey the centurion, but he was making the decision in order to embrace the nature of this one who was headed toward his death. Psalm 23. David, at some point in his life, is said to have written these words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How many times have I heard someone say, who has just come through 
or is then going through a terrible ordeal. I have heard them say, I don't know how someone without faith does this. <clears throat> I heard somebody say that this past week. They said to me, preacher, we've had a terrible, terrible time. I don't know how somebody without Jesus can do this. Father Mike Schmitz said, suffering without Christ is painful. <clears throat> suffering with Christ is painful but redemptive and will ultimately transform the world. And so I ask you this morning, how do we handle reality? How do we handle suffering? How do we handle our crosses, whatever they may be? And fortunately, I have the answer. It's written right here on my page. You want to know what the answer is? You may already know. With Christ. Who died for us. Who is raised for us.